This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing and Sun Life Financial. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It means better care. It means we're going to make Ontario the best place to grow up and grow old. That's Dr. Samir Sinha, the architect of a comprehensive strategy designed to transform the quality of health care for Zoomers across the province. It promises to make sure no seniors fall through the cracks. Dr. Sinha will be here to tell us more about it. I think that people don't take me seriously anymore. You might be surprised to find out that one of the biggest challenges of living with Alzheimer's disease is the way others treat you. Today, Elizabeth Allen, who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2006, will share some sad and revealing stories. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Dear, I was in London the other day, and it's really quite a place. I saw the Buckingham Palace, Westminster Abbey. That's Marion Michael reading from a love letter her husband Lloyd sent her during the Second World War. The California couple had saved hundreds of letters they sent back and forth during the war, locked up away from their kids in a trunk in their shed. However, in 1972, that shed was broken into and the letters were stolen. Now, over 40 years later, the letters are back in their possession and the couple is overjoyed. It's the result of a fellow veteran, a good Samaritan who wants to remain nameless. He tracked Lloyd Michael down by his service number and, living only an hour away, was able to return the letters in person. They came home. Like a miracle. Where they belonged. It's good news for disabled Canadian military veterans who were part of a class action lawsuit over pension clawbacks. Lawyers say the vets should begin receiving payments within six months. The veterans have been offered an $887 million settlement. Lead plaintiff Dennis Manouge of Halifax says he's pleased with the deal and figures it could provide benefits to 7,500 fellow veterans. The class action suit was filed in 2007. The federal court will review the tentative deal at a February 14th hearing in Halifax. Emmanuel Riva has become the oldest ever Best Actress nominee. At the age of 85, she's been nominated for her role in the Austrian movie Amour. Riva turns 86 the night of the Oscars on February 24th. Meanwhile, it looks like a promising year for Zoomers at the Academy Awards. The Steven Spielberg movie Lincoln leads the Academy Award contenders with 12 nominations, including acting honors for Daniel Day-Lewis, Sally Field, and Tommy Lee Jones. And finally, the late legendary Toronto pianist Glenn Gould will receive a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Grammys. 
Gould died in 1982 at the age of 50. He's among a group of musicians who will be honored at the annual Special Merit Awards at a ceremony in Los Angeles on February 9th. Gould was a four-time Grammy winner and one of the most renowned classical pianists of the 20th century. Other Canadians who have previously received the distinction include Oscar Peterson, Joni Mitchell, and Leonard Cohen. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. So we're very much in support of this. Our members throughout the province of Ontario, we will be very, very enthusiastic about this. We will recommend it to our members in the other provinces to recommend it to their governments as a blueprint for better seniors care in all of Canada. CARP Susan Eng was a big part of the announcement earlier this week as Ontario became the first province to adopt a sweeping strategy for seniors' health care. The report runs to 12 chapters and 200 pages with 169 recommendations. Its author, geriatrician Dr. Samir Sinha of Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, says that if it becomes a reality, it will completely transform our system and make it sustainable for the future. And what's more, he believes this can be done without spending a lot more money. I sat down with him in his office after the event on Tuesday. This is really about how do we have a plan that is really about applied common sense that allows us to make our healthcare system sustainable now and well into the future. And knowing that older Ontarians are the greatest users of our healthcare system, we have to make sure it's oriented to what their needs and wants are. What are the key factors in reorganizing the system for seniors? We know that actually 50% of older adults are leading very healthy and productive lives, and they will continue to do so. But we know there's a subsegment of our older population that has a lot of health and social issues. And sometimes they need things like home and community care. So by building those sorts of care systems in place, we can better provide the care they need. And it's often less expensive for the entire healthcare system. So this is one of those rare situations when good policy creates a win not only for the people themselves, but also for the government that's actually helping to fund a lot of that care. So we want to make sure that if you're a Zoomer who doesn't have a primary care physician, and I heard from a lot of Zoomers this summer who said, I'm having trouble trying to access that care, we want to make sure that no elder is left behind, no Zoomer is left behind. We want to make sure that if people need more home and community care, we can make sure that that care is there. Because frankly, Zoomers help build our province, Zoomers help build a system, and it needs to be there when they need it. Both you and the minister say we can accomplish those things without more money, but it's hard to get a family doctor, no matter what age you are. So are we going to need more family doctors? I mean, that costs money. First of all, 97.6% of Ontarians actually have a primary care physician. Back about a decade ago, it was only 90%. So the government has done a lot by getting more family doctors in Ontario and giving more people access to care. But what troubles me is still that there's a small percentage of older adults out there who don't have access to primary care. We actually have a lot of primary care organizations called family health teams, community health centers that actually do have capacity to take more patients, but they don't know how to connect with those patients who are looking for care. So we have a system called Healthcare Connect that's connected over 200,000 Ontarians with the primary care physician and about 20,000 older Ontarians with the family physician. But we know we can make that system work better. We can make sure it's connected with all primary care physicians. And we know that there's capacity to absorb those individuals to make sure that they get the primary care they need and they want. Also in terms of community care, I know many Zoomers who say, we need eight hours a week of care, but they're only giving us three. 
We know that there are 800,000 Ontarians currently accessing home and community care services, and we spend less money on home and community care than we do on the care we provide to 78,000 Ontarians in long-term care. Home care is cheap, and home care can provide a lot more people care, but we need to invest more. So this is why the minister made a 4% increase for the next three years in terms of investing more money. So that's about $150 million a year for more home and community care services. So that money means that we're going to actually help 90,000 more older Ontarians get that care. But it's also, we may have to start having a conversation to say, if we want even more care, the question is, how are we going to finance that care? Now, if you're talking about a Zoomer who maybe has multiple health problems needs to access services in the community. I mean, it seems to me that what you really need is someone who is going to coordinate all that. And when I look at the average family doctor who budgets 10 minutes for a visit or whatever it is, it's hard to imagine that the family doctor is going to take on that role. For those Zoomers who have multiple health issues, they often need multiple specialists. They need multiple people who are not just healthcare providers, but social and community care providers to help them out. Essentially, they need a team around them, a primary care team. The problem that we've had is we don't have a system that encourages people to talk with each other or doesn't require them to talk with each other. So it really means that sometimes people's issues can fall through the cracks or those individuals can have important things missed. So a big recommendation that we have made um, and that the minister is quite excited about is just starting to require that if you know, you're a community care provider, you're also going to work in partnership with that primary care physician by letting them know, you know, who you are, what you're doing, and it encourages more conversations, more cooperative working. We have many good examples of that happening in Ontario. My goal is to actually make that a standard of practice. And it's not just my goal, but many people in Ontario say, we can do this. We actually have the ability to do that within existing resources. It's a matter of just connecting the dots. Anything else that you see as a priority in the report? I think the priority in this report is really, this is a call to action. This report wasn't written by me. This is written by all the older Ontarians who participated, CARP in particular, and many Zoomers. I've created a report that really talks about building elder-friendly communities. It's about really building a healthcare system that matters um, and that recognizes the needs of what people have said they wanted. So I really hope that Zoomers out there who are listening will identify with this report and make sure that their politicians know that this is really important to them because I need everybody's support to really help move this forward. Dr. Samir Sinha, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Libby. All I can say to that is, amen. However, while it's great news that there will now be enough doctors to care for all of us, the question is, do they really know how to take care of older people? And if not, why not? I'll have some surprising answers when I bring you part two of my interview with Dr. Sinha next week. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. You might be surprised to find out what many people with Alzheimer's consider one of the worst parts about having the disease the way they're treated by other people. In just a moment, I'll be joined by Elizabeth Allen, who's been living with Alzheimer's since 2006 and has endured all the stereotypes and negative stigma the disease brings. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing and Sun Life Financial. It's Alzheimer's Awareness Month, and here's an aspect of the disease most of us probably are not aware of. What happens to your friends when you're diagnosed? The sad fact is, many of them will probably disappear. Others will treat you completely differently than before. 
I had a very revealing conversation with Elizabeth Allen. She's a 72-year-old Burlington woman who is in the earlier stages of Alzheimer's six years after diagnosis. In that time, she's lost many of the people she used to call friends. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I've probably got a lot to say about Alzheimer's because I've had a lot of time to think about it since I was diagnosed in 2006. And I really think that people should stop stereotyping us. And the attitude is that because I'm still able to verbalize, that I don't have Alzheimer's. So the fact that I have an incurable disease and my brain is dying gets completely dismissed. And that's hurtful. What do people say to you? They say things like, there's nothing wrong with you. I forget my car keys all the time. Uh, I bought something and put it in my closet and didn't remember. Um, That's just a normal part of aging. It's like I get dismissed. It's not I get dismissed. My Alzheimer's gets dismissed. Do you think that people thought maybe that would make you feel better or something? Yes, Yes. I'm sure that everyone was trying to pat me on the head and say, oh, everything's okay. But that dismisses the fact that you know, if, if I had cancer, they wouldn't be doing that. So it, it is, it's hurtful, and it's hurtful when people um, compare me to people in the later stages of Alzheimer's. And, and, and can I stop for a minute? Sure, absolutely. Um, I type notes on my computer because I know this is going to happen to me. So can I read my notes? Sure, absolutely. It just blows my mind that people have an image in their head of the late stages, and all Alzheimer's people must fit that image. Great when we're diagnosed. And overnight, we seem to become illiterate, irresponsible, we can't make decisions, and they don't want to know us anymore. And that has happened. People don't get to see people like me who are still functioning, So they they don't get that. There are a lot of things that you can still do. Exactly. There are millions of people out there who just don't understand how early diagnosis, medication, accepting, befriending and working with Alzheimer's can change the attitude and the appearance of an Alzheimer person. I mean, we don't have to immediately start looking and acting like we're in the last stages. I found out that my Alzheimer's didn't start the day I got diagnosed. It started a good 10 to 20 years before I realized that things weren't quite right. And I'm still the same person I was yesterday. I'm just on the journey. Now, you talked about people who don't want to know you anymore. Tell Mm -hmm. me about that. Well, they didn't hang around. I got diagnosed, and they kind of disappeared. I I had uh, someone close or I thought was close, say, what's the point in talking to an Alzheimer person? They won't remember anyway. Someone actually said that to you? They did, and I'm not too sure that they didn't think they were being witty. But it wasn't wit, and I haven't heard from them since, so I guess they meant it. Is that something that you were prepared for, that people would actually drop you? No, I wasn't prepared for that. I wasn't prepared for it because... I didn't think I was any different than I had been before, but I I must admit, Libby, that I went through a real anger stage 
when I was diagnosed, and my uh, I thought my world had come to an end, and 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 I was angry at everybody, and it's only the people who really stuck with me through that that are my friends today. Mm-hmm. And I understand that the anger is a big part of the Alzheimer's. Like when, when I'm talking to other caregivers or Alzheimer people, they refer to the anger. And I think it's a natural progression. But if you're diagnosed early and if you're on medication early and if you learn how to deal with it, then the anger subsides. Is the anger your reaction to it or is the anger actually a symptom of it? I I don't think it's a symptom, but I think when you try and do something that you've been doing for 10, 20 years and and you just don't know how to do it, there's frustration. And when there's frustration, there's anger. When we miss appointments, when we're not where we're supposed to be, when, when we um, forget things, when we can't... Um, focus on a, length, a lengthy conversation, then there's frustration, and the frustration leads to anger. So if you were giving advice to the rest of us mm-hmm. on how to deal with somebody in your situation or how to react, what would you tell us? I'd just tell you to enjoy me. <laughs> <laughs> because, All righty. <laughs> because I'm learning to live in the now. And it it can actually be fun. That sounds lovely. Elizabeth, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, and uh, I really appreciate it. Well, Libby, thank you so much for calling. Okay. I've enjoyed it. For more information about the stigma of Alzheimer's and how to erase it, go to alzheimer.ca. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Oh, I never got old. That, of course, is Johnny Cash, and in just a moment, we'll return with a look at one of the most popular concert albums of the 20th century, Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing and Sun Life Financial. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time now for your International Arts Date Book. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In the Windy City, see the unconventional artistry of Claire Ashley at the Chicago Cultural Center. The exhibition is called Frizz Flop Squeeze Pop and features large, vibrantly colored works on unique surfaces. To Berlin, where the Museum for Film and Television offers an in-depth look at the work of veteran filmmaker Martin Scorsese. Among the items on display, Robert De Niro's fake blood-splattered shirt from Cape Fear and his battered boxing gloves from Raging Bull. And in Finland, the Helsinki Lux Festival features colorful lights and lasers, which light up downtown buildings during the darkest days of the year. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Date Book. My bills are all due, and the babies need shoes, but I'm That's the man in black, Johnny Cash. Today marks the anniversary of his legendary concert at Folsom Prison, which was turned into a hugely popular live album. The concert took place on January 13, 1968, at Folsom State Prison in California. And although he was never in jail himself, 
Cash was no stranger to prison life. He performed concerts in numerous prisons throughout the late 50s and 60s. His music connected with the prisoners who would write him countless letters requesting his appearance or thanking him for his inspiration and understanding. By 1968, his career hit a standstill, and looking to revitalize it, he suggested recording a live version of one of his prison shows. His producer called two prisons, San Quentin and Folsom. Folsom responded first and agreed to the idea. It was a smashing success. The album went gold within months of its release. In Cash's own words, that's where things really got started for me again. Right now, we'll take you back to that day in 1968 as we hear the crowd react to the title track and opening number, Folsom Prison Blues. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling around a bend. And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison and time keeps dragging on. But that train keeps rolling on down to San Antonio. When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son, always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head and cry. That was Johnny Cash with Folsom Prison Blues. It's from his album, recorded live at Folsom Prison. The historic concert took place on this day in 1968. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Please come back next week when I'll talk to Dr. Samir Sinha about why we have so few geriatric doctors and caregivers for older people. We'll see you then. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing and Sun Life Financial. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Knight. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program director, John Bandriel. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.